0: Coming to you a little later on this Thursday, but there is good reason for that. It has been a busy, busy day in Harrisonburg. Welcome in. Today is Thursday, October 21st, and this is another edition of the Walkthrough Podcast by the Daily News Record. I am Greg Medea, JMU football beat writer at the paper and host of the podcast. I've got... Just a ton to get to today. You you guys know what's going on with the Dukes, both on the field and, and more importantly, at this time, off the field and and what their future is, possibly. Jamie, was a game this Saturday at Delaware. They won this past weekend at Richmond. I've got interviews with Chris Dorton and Hero Sports' Dan Steenkamer to get to, but you guys know where I'm starting, and it's three comments you need to hear, but of course I'm doing it while talking realignment and talking about the potential future for, for James Madison and what it could mean for a potential move to, to the FBS and what factors really are important for James Madison to consider. When it's thinking about making the decision on an FBS move. So I want to I want to begin kind of giving you the outline the last 24 hours, 48 hours or so since things have gotten a little crazy with this type of news. I guess I would begin with what happened in the AAC, the American Athletic Conference. You guys know what happened to them already in terms of the schools they lost. Houston, Central Florida. And Cincinnati, they have opted to replace those schools with six current members of CUSA. This is all stemming from the, the trickle down effect in the aftermath of Texas and Oklahoma's decision to leave the Big 12 for the SEC this past July. It's, it's all stemming from that. It's all the repercussions of that because in the Big 12 turned around, added Cincinnati, Houston. BYU and UCF, of course, like I just mentioned, three of those four from the AAC, and now the AAC has in turn officially added six members of the current Conference USA. That leaves the current Conference USA and the current Sun Belt, which has really turned into an excellent league. And if you guys have been following some of my work, some of my colleagues, Shane Metland's work on some of the possibilities... For, for JMU, we, when all this really started to happen, I think both Shane and I have, have mentioned that the, the Sun Belt would not be a bad landing spot for, for James Madison if that's where it ends up, but regardless, the latest is over the last 48 hours or so, 24 hours or so, that James Madison is both the target of expansion, and this first reported by Yahoo Sports and the Athletic, confirmed by Daily News Record sources too, that James Madison has options, and specifically, the Dukes are a target of both the Sun Belt and Conference USA, potential for, for, for a movement there. Of course, you always have to mention this because I think it is still uh, maybe not the most likely possibility, but you also have to weigh that maybe there is, is a chance that James Madison stays put. At the FCS level and, and the CAA, particularly. I think that's part of all this decision process that I was able to ask Jeff Bourne about a little bit today during his press conference. Jeff Bourne, the James Madison athletic director, longtime AD of the Dukes, held a press conference Thursday at the Atlantic Union Bank Center, the basketball arena. Just, just to give you a little background there, he was already scheduled to speak. Before this news broke, and, and I give JMU you some credit there because they they had him still speak to the media when things are kind of going crazy, rumors are swirling, and there's a lot of speculation around the future of of the football program and the athletic department as a whole in terms of where its next conference affiliation or it's it may may lie. You know that that may still be in the CAA, it may not, but. There obviously is potential for a jump to FBS, and it's something at the end of the day that James Madison is going to make a decision on. So let me get to the first comment you need to hear. This is Jeff Bourne when I asked him afterward, what exactly are some of the factors, some of the determining factors when you evaluate a move to the FBS, and and it's been one of his similar lines and takes at JMU for the last, since I've been on the beat and probably longer. But this is Jeff Bourne on on his overview of what's happening right now in college athletics and and as it pertains to James Madison and a potential jump to the FBS.
1: All of you have been around JMU for a long time and you know our posture with regard to expansion. I think James Madison, we wholeheartedly believe, is uh, a valuable institution to any league uh, in the country uh, with our academic profiles an institution, uh, our winning sports programs across the board, not just in basketball and football, but for all sports, I think we have a lot to offer. Uh, the work that we're doing and that we're diligent with is out there to make sure that we find ways to promote our brand, um, to make sure that our student athletes have the best uh, experience that they can have throughout their career at the university. So we're very open-minded, we're well aware that this is a dynamic, changing environment, um, and that every day brings something new, but we look at everything that we do from an intentional and and a diligent standpoint, and we're going to continue to do that. I'm not going to get into individual conversations and what-if scenarios, but just know that, uh, as we always do, uh, we're keenly aware of where things are and we're working to make sure that Jamie is postured in the
0: best place that it can be. It is clear to me that James Madison has options. It is also clear to me that things are going to have to be a great, great fit for the Dukes to make the jump, whether that is a conference with a good geographical footprint or a division within a conference that has a good geographical footprint. I think that is very, very important to James Madison. JMU, I believe, wants to be aligned with like-minded schools, schools it can drive to, schools its fans can drive to and get to games at. So to me, I, I really believe this is a big part of all that. And of course, when you look at the, the two leagues as they're currently constructed, the, the JMU is, is, is a potential option for. You look at the Sun Belt, it's, it's more of a, a wide-scope league, I would say. It extends a little further than what the current Conference USA has based on the schools that have left for the AAC. If you look... The current Conference USA includes members Marshall, Old Dominion, FIU, Louisiana Tech, Middle Tennessee State, Southern Mississippi, and UTEP. Of course, there's been some reports that Southern Miss may actually leave for the Sun Belt. The Sun Belt has Coastal Carolina, Appalachian State, Georgia State, Troy, Georgia Southern, Louisiana, Texas State, South Alabama, Louisiana Monroe, and Arkansas State. I look at a lot of those schools, and some some of them have followed similar paths to the FBS that JMU would take should it decide to move up. I think about Marshall and ODU and App State and and Georgia Southern, particularly that found some success at the FCS level, or 1AA level if you go back in a day, before moving to 1A or or now what's considered FCS. So to me, there's some like-minded schools there involved. And if you're JMU, you probably want to be aligned with some of them. And if you had your preference, I would think you'd want to be involved with schools in Virginia, since there are some opportunities uh, in neighboring West Virginia, too, with Marshall. Old Dominion, of course, is in Conference USA. Marshall, of course, is in the current Conference USA. So maybe there's a potential for JMU to move into that league with those two schools. It's also been reported that Liberty could be a target of expansion for Conference USA as it tries tries to rebuild its league in the aftermath of losing six members to the current AA, to, to to what's being formed, a new AAC. And then you got the Sun Belt, which has also reportedly targeted Marshall and Old Dominion and... Then, if you could get Marshall, Old Dominion, App State, and JMU all in the same league, that's probably something JMU would feel pretty good about. I think it's very, very interesting, and there's being a there, there's a premium being paid, being paid, there's a premium being put on that geographic fit. Here is Jeff Bourne. This is the second comment you need to hear. It's Born on the importance of finding a league with a regional fit. It's always helpful to make sure that you have peers and you can build a sense of rivalry
1: in any league that you're in.
0: I think I'd be naive if I didn't mention what I've heard from from sources <laughs> over the last couple of days is that you cannot forget the financial impact here, and this is something you guys know. You, you've you've studied. I know the diehards who want the jump to FBS, and even those who want to stay in the FCS have looked at this uh, as as a potential. Uh, hindrance to, to making a jump to the FBS level for JMU. The Dukes have an athletic department budget north of $58 million. That's according to USA Today's College Sports Financial Database. And that to me fits in line, if you look at that database, fits in line with many group of five school budgets and, and outdoes some of them too, quite frankly. I think JMU ranks 61 in that USA Today College Sports Financial Database, which is really, really important. But Costs at that level rise if you're going to move up to the FBS. And that factors in increased travel, larger salaries for coaches, obviously. You can't pay a football coach the same thing you pay him in the FCS if you're going to move up to the FBS. And then there are scholarship additions with football. You go from 63 scholarships, which is the threshold at the FCS level, to 85 in FBS football. I will say JMU is probably closer to that FBS level level. Uh, 85 scholarship limit now than it is than it is the 63 limit because of the extra year of eligibility granted by the NCAA due to COVID this past year for this year's team. So I think it would be an easier transition if they started now to get to that 85. But it, it it does increase costs over time, and you have to figure out if that is sustainable. For, for JMU, if you're Jeff Bourne and Jonathan Alger and the people making this decision about whether or not to make a jump to the FBS. I thought Bourne said something really, really interesting. This is the third comment you need to hear. It's Bourne on the financial projection and, and what he looks at when, when he's searching for, for what's next. This is James Madison Athletic Director Jeff Bourne this is the third comment you need to hear.
1: It's hard to tell because you have to realize the, the financial projection of that is based upon who you're playing and who's in the league <laughs> and what do those expenses look like and what's the revenue share look like. There, there are a lot of very dynamic uh, factors that go into that calculation and they all change based on different scenarios. And as I mentioned earlier today, scenarios change in leagues and sometimes change overnight. So you have to make a, a projection of stability as you look at those two. And that's, that's probably one of the largest challenges, that as you look at other options, stability is, is, is very, very important.
0: Okay, so I, I think that's a really, really good point by Jeff Bourne about the projection of stability. To me, I always look at Old Dominion, right? They joined... Conference USA in the, in the last round of realignment and thought they'd be in the same league as ECU. Of course, East Carolina goes to the AAC. You look at East Carolina now and they're in an, in an AAC where it's really the only school in a college town based on what's going to happen with the future of the league after they took members from Conference USA. It's a lot of schools based in cities. So to, to me, You gotta figure out not only is what's good for the next two, three, four, five years, but also what's good for ten, what's good for twenty years down the road when you evaluate this decision. So, I thought some really interesting comments there from Jeff Bourne. didn't Didn't want to not mention also that that I did ask him about the Cox bill. For for those who don't know what the Cox bill is, it's a. How's the best way to explain this? It's a limit on the percentage of student fees that can be used to, to fund athletic department budgets. in At the FCS level, you're allowed to fund your athletic department budget with more student fees. That percentage drops when you move from the FCS to the group of five. And then if, if you were to go to group of five to the FBS, it gets lower uh, the higher level you go because you're, you're supposed to find that money in other places to, to fund your athletic department So uh, because the costs are higher. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting and something that, that every school in the state of Virginia has to think about. That's a Virginia rule, law, however you want to term it, technicality. But Bourne said he, he's in a good place with that. The, the JMU is in a good place with that. So I did ask the question. I know a lot of people had asked me about that on Twitter and in email, So I did ask the question. It is something to think about, he said. But you, know, you, you need that money to come from somewhere else. And maybe if JMU makes that jump, like I said, it kind of goes back to the importance of being in a league with regional potential regional rivals and exciting matchups where you can sell out the stadium and and ticket sales can help cover some of that revenue. Uh, The media deal, too. I know those two leagues, the Sunbelt and CUSA, don't have huge media deals like a Power 5 league does, but it would still bring in more than than what the CAA brings in with, with Flow Sports. So, Something to think about for sure. Okay, that's a lot on realignment here in the first few minutes of the podcast. But I wanted to get to it out of the gate because I thought it was important. I held the podcast on purpose until later today because I wanted to make sure uh, I gave you my thoughts. I had a lot of Twitter questions about it anyway, rightfully so. So I figured I'd just knock it out all in one shot and get you going with the realignment talk. I I hope uh, I'm covering this to to your liking, it's the biggest story because if they go FBS it, it, it's a huge deal. If they stay FCS, it's a huge deal for other reasons. So so I wanted to get to that out of the gate I'm glad I did to make sure I covered that for you guys. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions in the next 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 few weeks, months, whatever, however long it takes, days, if it only takes days. Hopefully before this podcast ends, nothing changes. But anyway. Uh, I'm I'm glad I got to it and glad I got to talk about it for you guys. I want to switch gears though, get to the football because there, there are still games and those matter too. Without the games on Saturdays, none of none of the you know none of the other stuff matters. So I wanted to get to the football game. I want to touch on the Richmond game first. James Madison, a 19-3 winner at Richmond this past Saturday. I thought they played a very good game on defense. The Dukes, they were really a, a really dominant on defense. Richmond couldn't do much of anything. If you look back at the game, Richmond absolutely struggled to move the football. James Madison was in the backfield seemingly. Almost every single play on defense, creating havoc for whoever was in the game at quarterback. For the Spiders, I look and I think about Bo English, and and just, just remember that sequence, yeah, I think it was in the third quarter when James Madison got to him, to end the third quarter actually, when James Madison managed back-to-back sacks to end the period. It was kind of at a point in the game where, where Richmond was starting to get it moving on offense a little bit, uh, and they drove into James Madison territory and probably were in field goal range at that point, but back-to-back sacks. From James Madison, defensive tackle Tony Thurston knocked the Spiders out of field goal range. In total, Jamie tallied six sacks this past Saturday, getting the two from Thurston, two from defensive end Bryce Carter, and then one apiece from linebacker Kelvin Izanama and defensive tackle Mike Green. That helped hold Richmond to 188 yards of total offense. and That, that was the story. James Madison struggled on offense a little bit, I thought, particularly in a red zone. And that, that is becoming a bit of an issue for the Dukes on top of not running it as well as they have in the past. But throughout that game against the Spiders, you never felt like Richmond was in it or had a shot to win it. That's just my feeling from watching James Madison's defense. Richmond couldn't get anything going in its running game. They couldn't get anything going in its passing game, and part of that probably is because of their situation, playing a backup quarterback, playing a uh, third-string quarterback at times. Uh, so James Madison really didn't need to do a whole lot on offense. The only touchdown they scored came in the first quarter when Solomon Van Horse had a nice little route out of the backfield, catching a pass from Cole Johnson and turning it into a 25-yard touchdown. That was the only touchdown of the game, the only points Jamie really needed. But Ethan Ratke had a good day when, when drives did stall in the red zone. He he was four for four on field goal tries, bouncing back after a tough week the week before against Villanova. So to me, I, I thought I thought Ethan Ratke had a had a pretty good game and helped JMU in that win. The, the offense, just in my opinion, uh not great, not horrendous. They still moved the ball, but they are searching for some better red zone efficiency. If you look at what they did They didn't score touchdowns on any of their four red zone trips. This season, JMU is only scoring touchdowns on 51% of its red zone opportunities, and that's down from the last two campaigns. If you look this past spring, JMU scored touchdowns in the red zone on 60% of its opportunities. And then if you go back to 2019, Signetti's first season at the helm of JMU when the Dukes reached... The FCS National Championship game JMU found the end zone in 67% of its red zone chances. So, it's becoming a little bit of a trend and a trend that needs to stop. Maybe it gets better this weekend against Delaware. Delaware is struggling to stop people. They've given up big plays. Of course, that doesn't help you in a red zone, but Delaware's red zone defense isn't very good either and so maybe it's an issue JMU can start to get corrected. I know Kurt Signetti had said the head coach at JMU had said the Dukes have normally done a little better because in the past they've had a runner at, at quarterback who can move the move the football with his legs in the red zone. That is not the case right now with Colt Johnson, Said he doesn't really consider Johnson a runner. So that, that's an issue they have to sort out. I think it would really help if they got a bit of a better push from its offensive line when they want to run the ball in the red zone. But until then, I think they're going to live and die with the RPO stuff down there, and hope, uh, and hope that is enough to find the end zone. So it will be really, really intriguing this week for for James Madison going to Delaware, a Delaware team that is down, a Delaware team that is struggling to see if they can move the ball. I'm going to preview that game in a minute. I'm going to get to your, a few of your Twitter questions in a minute, but I do want to get to the Chris Thornton interview now. Caught up with Chris on Tuesday after JMU's football practice. Uh, Talked to Chris a little bit about everything. He made a hell of a catch down the sideline against Richmond this past Saturday. I think it was a 49-yard grab. He also leads the Colonial Athletic Association in catches. He's found the end zone four times. Of course, a few weeks back, had the big go-ahead touchdown uh, against New Hampshire. So I wanted to catch up with Chris. Talk to him a little bit about... What this season has been like for him and and how he's been so successful. And two, some about his dad. His dad, Keith Thornton, played football at JMU in the late 80s through 1990. Led JMU in catches, receiving yards, and touchdowns in 1988. So I wanted to talk with Chris a little bit about growing up with his dad, a former JMU player, and, and the influence he's had on him too. So here is my conversation, my chat with Chris Thornton, a James Madison wide receiver who's doing it all for the Dukes through six weeks this season. I'll start here with the outstretched catch you made the other day. What was going through your mind when you see the ball in the air like that and, and knowing that you're probably gonna have to make a and
2: catch to get it? Uh huh. Um, I seen it in the air, like it was, the ball was in the air when I came out of my break and I was like, damn, I gotta try to run this ball down. <laughs> so I uh, tried to go get it and uh, I was wishing I could stay it up so I could score the touchdown, but I mean, I made the play and uh, it was a great catch. You're
0: leading the CAA in, in catches right now. What's well, been the key to consistency and, and making sure you get your touches week in and week out?
2: Uh-huh. I think uh, they try to give me the ball in uh, multiple ways, like with the RPO game, bubbles, quick little throws, and I can also take deep shots. But the RPOs are definitely one, probably the main reason that I'm uh, at the top of the list. But yeah, it's good. To, uh, always, you know, to have the ball in your hands as a receiver. So that's been that's been good.
0: Yeah, I was I was gonna say. That be versatile enough to catch all the different kinds of passes. Is that something you've worked on in the offseason? Is that something you've always had a knack for? How do you kind of sum that up in, in being able to do all the different necessary things in any offense?
2: Yeah, I've, uh, I just try not to be like put in a box because so you see a, a, a slot receiver, a smaller receiver, oh, uh, he can only catch under, underneath routes. He's not a deep threat. So I've always had that speed aspect in my game. So I try to use that to the best of my ability with deep routes. So I think I've always had uh, at all these three. three facets of the game with under routes, quick quick throws and, and a deep ball, so yeah.
0: I don't know if other people notice it, but you have a little physical presence to you when you try to finish off, or, off a run. Have you always had that? Also, I noticed it the other day a couple of times that you're kind of lowering your shoulder a little. I'm like, what's uh, what's Chris doing over
2: there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just try to, uh, you know, not, I'm a smaller guy, so I try to show people that it don't really matter how small I am. I'm still going to bring it regardless. So I'm always going to, you know, I have that little edge to me just because I've always been small, even when I was playing rec league. So I've always had that edge to me. Do you think you catch people by surprise when you do that? because they think you're this, you know, fast slot receiver that maybe maybe is not going to try to finish a play like that? <laughs> yeah, I probably do catch people by surprise, to be honest. They probably think I'm going to make a move or something and then I just lower my shoulder. So, I mean, it is a little uh, change of pace. It's a little change of pace that I can uh, bring to the table. Yeah, no, no doubt. What's... With those RPOs, the
0: play can go a number of different ways, I'm, I'm sure. H- how prepared do you have to be on each
2: snap, whether you're going to get the ball or not? Because I guess you, you don't know. Right? Yeah, you don't know. I mean, most of the time you can see the look, like, you know, like, it's definitely coming to me this time. But every time I run an RPO, I'm just ex- always expecting the ball. Like, I'm expecting the ball to come my way, so I'm always prepared. That makes a lot of sense. I guess
0: kind of big picture I also wanted to ask you about what's it meant to to play here so far I know we've talked a little about your transition from VMI to JMU but now that you've been part of the program for for a while now and you're you're making plays Mm -hmm. what's it mean to
2: you? I mean it's great I love playing uh, for JMU I I love playing especially at home I love the atmosphere playing for the fans it's a great it's a great team we got great camaraderie so I, I love playing at JMU. What's it mean to your dad too? I think he's happy for me. Yeah. <laughs> he comes, they come to most of the games, so I think he's happy for me. It, I mean, it means a lot.
0: Did he ever tell you about you know his playing days and, and run you through that as, as you were making your decision?
2: Uh, I mean, when I was little, I know I used to uh, watch some uh, VHS tapes. of Oh him yeah, playing. yeah. So I, I see some VHS tapes of him playing. But yeah, I mean, it's, I've always known that he's played here. Like I said, um, we've been to some of the games yeah, when I was little. So,
0: is there a VHS play that that stands out to you from, from, from his days?
2: I mean, I was too little probably to plays, but I mean, I'm sure he's probably. I mean, I'm sure my dad was running some deep routes, catching yeah. some deep balls. So. I mean, he probably had some uh, some deep passes that he caught. Did he Did he coach
0: you up when you were young, uh, running around the backyard or something like that? Was he Was he Was he there to coach you up? And how how much of an influence has he had in your in your career?
2: Uh uh-huh. My dad's uh, throughout rec league. He was my head, uh, my coach, so cool. I've always been coached by my dad. And yeah. We, um, like during the off season, I usually work out with him a little bit too, as as well as working out with other people. But yeah. I work out with my dad and run some drills with him too. So he's had a big part in my uh, football career.
0: Is he is he calling you after every game? The coach giving giving you a pointer or two? Yeah,
2: I mean he, usually he's at the game, so I just talk to him after the game. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, fair but yeah, he, um, last game they weren't able to be there, and he, he called me and we talked about the game a little bit.
0: Just last week, what do you see with Delaware's defense? What what stands out about the Blue Hens?
2: Uh, they're uh, fast and physical, so they, they fly around and get to the ball. And uh, they're a good team. Like we know, we have a challenge ahead of us. They were in the semifinals last uh, year, just like us. So we know they're a good team, and we know we have to come out and play in order to get what, done what we want to get done.
0: Does that does that any add anything to the matchup that you guys didn't get to play them in the spring and and they they were given a CA championship yeah. first? Does that add anything?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit. We know that it's a little it's a little chip on our shoulder because they took the CAA championship from us last year but yeah it's a little chip on our shoulder and that's that's added fuel to the fire for this game this week
0: good to catch up with Chris Thornton I do have a story online you can read it dnronline.com went up earlier on Thursday and it will also be in Friday's print edition of the daily news record uh, with with comments from Keith Thornton too. Chris's dad on Chris's performance throughout the year and his days at JMU back in the late eighties and nineteen ninety. He played for Joe Persicki, the former James Madison coach. And it's just kind of really interesting hearing some of his comments, some of what he had to say about how the game has changed, how he might have been used in, in some of the RPO plays that, that Chris has made such a such a great, remarkable uh, living on basically, if you want to call it that, at the college level, and his production has come off of. Uh, you heard Chris say, you know, the bubble, the little quick throws, the deep shots. You know, some of those come off RPOs, especially the, the stuff in the short passing game. So really, really fascinating there, and then good, really nice to to talk with Keith Thornton as well, who played for the Dukes back back in the day. Anyway, I do want to get to a few of your Twitter questions now. I've got some of those in front of me. So I will start with, and I'm not going to take as many as I normally do, just because I've got some other stuff to get to. I want to set the scene for the Delaware game. And then Daniel Steen came. He did a great job helping me get the Blue Hens perspective on things going into Saturday, I do want to get to that interview before wrapping up today, I promise a little bit longer of an addition next week on the pod, but I thought it was important to get some quick thoughts on realignment before getting into some of the usual stuff, some of the necessities, but I do want to start with that. this, at JCWJMU, he asked, Greg, do you have any more specific information about the return of Liam Fornadel? How does JMU's existing O line stack up against opposing defenses of our upcoming opponents? As far as Fornadel goes, I've got an indication that it could be as soon as the Campbell game. Maybe more likely, William and Mary. I know Kurt Signetti, the JMU head coach, has said he expects Fornadel back at the end of the season. Uh, According to some of my sources, I've heard maybe the the Campbell game, maybe the William & Mary game. But as fast as as possible is is probably the preference for JMU. But really, as as long as the Dukes have him for the playoffs, I think they would be very, very happy. And as far as your second question, how does JMU's existing O-line stack up against the opposing defenses, of upcoming opponents. I would say Delaware is a little dismantled up front to begin with the Blue Hens. I think Delaware has had some injury issues, had some COVID issues with his defensive line. So I would think this week is a chance for James Madison's young offensive line to get right. I wrote about that group a little bit earlier this week. They are getting better. I know it's not the dominant downhill JMU offensive line you're used to seeing. I know you probably think back to 2016 when they're running downhill on people en route to an international championship. Or 2017 when Aaron Stinney is protecting Brian Short's blindside. It's not that type of group right now because they are so young. But even Danny Rocco, the Delaware coach, had said... This week during a CA coach's call, that he he thought JMU's O line has some really good individual players right now, and I guess you kind of read behind the, uh, you you read between the lines, kind of kind of take something from that is they're just not quite gelling as a group, and maybe not showing the consistency that a typical veteran offensive line shows from from JMU. So they're they're growing up, Cole Potts, Tyshawn Wyatt. Tyler Stevens, the three freshmen. Kidwell is playing really well, according to Signetti. And even JT Timming. He's kind of the guy that holds everything together at this point. The older veteran season center. Uh, so so I would think it's an improving unit and one that's going to get better. I think Rocco had said you know, he, he thinks their best offense at JMU is ahead of them. So maybe they get right this week against Delaware. Delaware gave up a 99-yard touchdown this past week against Stony Brook uh, to Tyson Lawton, who who is leading the league in rushing. Okay, let's go now to at WHS Coach Clark. Are there any players that you are surprised are not getting more playing time right now? For example, I saw MJ Hampton on some special teams, but not on defense very much. Okay, to answer this question, I I would think you're going to see more of MJ Hampton That's been, he's been one who has had to work back from the injury. Remember, injured a little bit during training camp. They've had to ease him in a little bit. He played on special teams actually against Villanova. And then played some on defense against Richmond. So, I think it was Sam Kidd who was out the first half against Richmond. MJ Hampton filled in a little bit and and I asked Signetti too about MJ Hampton earlier this week and what he had said was you know Hampton can play free safety strong safety can play rover for the Dukes so he's someone I think you're going to see in a variety of roles as his as he evolves into kind of a, a freelancer and fills in where JMU needs him in that defensive backfield as far as the safety rover spots go. So I think you'll see more and more Hampton as as this season goes on and as he gets a little bit more comfortable uh, moving moving forward. Okay, let's go to, and this will be the last one I take today, let's go to at former Neil, going into the season, I think we were expecting the run game to be a strength and emphasis of the offense and basically run all over everyone. Now it seems like the emphasis has shifted more toward the pass. Run has shown flashes here and there. What can we attribute this to? Yeah, former Neil, I think it goes back a little bit to the offensive line and that they're a little younger up front, rightfully so, without Fornado, without Raymond Gillespie, who decided not to come back. For his senior season, Uh, you know, so to to me, I I think I I think it's probably that, and then also you got to throw in the fact that the JMU's best playmakers at this point are Thornton and, and Antoine Wells Jr. and Eric Receiver, so maybe there's a little infatuation to get them the football, which I don't think there's a problem with. You want to get your playmakers the ball and always prioritize that, But and this is something I talked a little bit last week about on the podcast, is in doing so, and because the run game isn't as dominant, maybe James Madison's lost its identity on offense a little bit, because they, they're always used to being that downhill, aggressive running team, especially under Signetti, who furthered it upon from what Mike Houston and his staff was doing with the offense and their emphasis on the run. I mean... I think back to the season Khalid Abdullah had as a senior, and they were so run-oriented. And even in 2019, when J.M.U. went to the FCS National Championship under Signetti, who was it? It was a heavy dose of Percy Ajay Obese and Juwan Hamilton and a little mix of what Ben Denucci could do in a run game. And then Latrell Palmer finishing off opponents. They just don't have that luxury right now because the offensive line is growing up like i said they're not playing bad they're just kind of growing up learning on the fly and and jamie's played against some pretty stout run defenses too here as of late richmond particularly like i said has excellent players linebackers and tristan wheeler and with tristan wheeler and tyler dressler and then of course with the the great defensive end kobe turner i think back to villanova and and you guys know the drill at villanova you guys are caught up to speed on them and, and what they do with their three down defense they'll play a 3-3 they'll play a 3-4 they'll play a 3-2-6 so to me it's it's been a kind of a combination of that and wanting to get the ball in wells and thornton's hands so it's a little bit of both i suspect they'll get back to running it and they'll try to run it this week against delaware delaware has a three down front not as dominant as Villanova, not as good as New Hampshire, and definitely not as good as Richmond up front. So I think JMU may treat this Delaware game as a get-right game and as, as they get ready for Saturday in Newark, Delaware. Okay, let me set the scene for Saturday. I haven't done it yet. It'll be number seven, James Madison. On the road, the Dukes are 5-1 and one overall and 3-1 and one in the Colonial Athletic Association. Going to Delaware Stadium in Newark at number 23, Delaware, the Blue Hens are 3-3 three and 2-2 three and two and two in the CAA. Both teams were FCS national semifinalists this past spring, and I think you heard Chris Thornton say it, there's a little bit of a chip on JMU's shoulder considering Delaware was awarded the CAA championship by a vote of coaches. Uh, or by a vote of athletic directors this past spring in the aftermath of of the two CA, or the CAA splitting into two divisions. So I think there's a little bit there of, of wanting to prove that JMU was the better team, is the better team. So you're talking about two teams though that, that haven't played each other much. For as much as you think is of, of JMU and Delaware is the two bigger, better brands in the CAA. The Dukes and the Blue Hens haven't played since 2018, and that was a playoff meeting. It was a 20-8 win for JMU over Delaware in Harrisonburg. That was a first-round game. And then The last regular season meeting was in 2017, a 20-10 win for JMU at Delaware, at Delaware Stadium. And if you remember that game, I think it was Andrew Ankra who had the big fumble recovery for a touchdown that played a huge role in JMU winning at Delaware. So you've had a couple of games that were more defensive bouts. I just don't see this Delaware team having the same stature, same toughness, that those Delaware teams in 17 and 18 did because they're a little beaten up. So I do want to get to my conversation with Daniel Kamer of Hero Sports. Does a really good job covering Delaware. And, and just to give you a little background on him, because you may not have heard of him, he's a younger guy. He's only a student at Syracuse University, but he, he's grown up around Delaware football, and he covers the CAA a little bit for Hero Sports. So I wanted to have Daniel on because he's, he's excellent. Knows the Delaware program really, really well. So I talked with Daniel... I had him on uh, to talk about this JMU Delaware game from the Delaware perspective, so here's my chat with Dan Steenkamer. The Walkthrough Podcast is is happy to welcome in a first-time guest. This is Daniel Steenkamer of Hero Sports. He's a young guy, young reporter, but he knows his stuff and, and knows the Delaware program really, really well, which is why I wanted to have him on. So Dan... I'll, I'll start here. I want to get your big picture temperature take on the Blue Hens right now. They are 3-3 three three overall, 2-2 two two in a CAA after reaching the National Semifinals this past spring. A really good, strong spring season for Delaware. But right now, things, things are not going well for the Blue Hens. Do they feel like their season is on the line this Saturday? As they get set to host James Madison, and I guess, how disappointing has, has these first six games been for them? Well, thanks, Greg, so much for having me on first. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here.
3: But um, to address your question, I, I do think Delaware season is on the line on Saturday, and it's a tough spot for Delaware to be. They are at home. It is homecoming weekend for them, uh, so it will be a, a big turnout. I'm sure with some purple and gold sprinkled in there, uh, no doubt, or in that away uh, side section of Delaware Stadium, but... Delaware's season does does seem, seem to be on the line here. I mean, you just look on paper. If you have three losses before Halloween and your magic number is like 7-4 most years coming out of the CAA to be in the playoff conversation, be on the bubble, then Delaware has to, as you look at their schedule overall for the remainder of the season, they have to steal a game from JMU or Villanova, one of those two, to give yourself some some room to uh, finish at 7-4 and, and, and still be in the picture come, the, come Selection Sunday. So it's a tough spot for Delaware to be. It does feel like the season is on the line, and, and, and really there is a lot of disappointment because of how successful the spring was. You touched on it, but the spring was such a such a turnaround season for Delaware. It's such a proud program historically, decades before my time and right before my time. You, you, you see the playoff appearances. You see the Tubby Raymond of the world, the Casey Keeler in his time at Delaware very successful. So the spring season felt like a return to that national relevance that prominence where winning the CAA even you know by the league vote getting the automatic bid that, that was a big factor too but that all feels so long ago now for Delaware and things have gone a little sideways ever since Nolan Henderson has had to be out for the season uh, due to a season ending surgery that he had completed um, earlier this month so just feels like spring success is is, is not forgotten but just feels a long distance away ago even though it was even just this calendar year that it happened.
0: Yeah wow no, no, no doubt about it if I could ask you What's the fan base's feeling about Danny Rocco? He's, he's in his fifth season there now as the head coach of Delaware after uh, leaving behind Richmond following the 2016 season. Is, is there still confidence in Danny Rocco? He's been doing it a long time. He's a really good coach, I think. But what's the Delaware fan base feel right now? Well, I
3: spoke a little bit to the ebbs and flows of Delaware football history, right? They, they haven't had their golden years in this decade, except for that this past season in the spring with the semis appearance. And But the expectations have never changed in the fan base. It's a very loyal fan base. Um, they've been through a lot in, in this decade and, and all that I've seen in my lifetime. And so the expectations remain high. And so when you're three and three, when you start out as a top eight team in the country in the rankings coming off of a national semifinal appearance, that that's going to put People, you know, having some scrutiny on Danny Rocco, even though his record is is pretty strong throughout his whole head coaching career. You browse the message boards for the most extreme stuff. You know, they're already looking for a replacement, quite frankly. They are talking about guys to interview and things like that. Um, Danny Rocco is in the final season of his original contract with Delaware. An extension hasn't been made public. One would think that maybe that has occurred after the spring season. It just hasn't been released yet. But now UD, in a PR stance, is in an odd spot because this season – No one's really sure where it's going to end up without Nolan Henderson. It's not just Henderson. The whole team is very much banged up. Um, And so you really don't know exactly how things are going to turn out down the stretch. And so it's not a lame duck coaching situation, but you have one segment of the fan base that is most definitely looking to a future option at the head coaching spot. And you have another segment that's looking to be a little more patient, but just isn't nearly as vocal. So it's a little bit of a tenuous time in Newark beyond closed doors. We don't know what's going on behind the closed doors, whether an extension has already been in place, but... As far as taking the fan temperature, yeah, it's very much um, a divided uh, group. Some are very out on Danny Rocco right now, and others are are looking to stay the course. So uh, it, it really is kind of the most adversity that I think Danny Rocco has faced in his time at Delaware. And now he has to face JMU, uh, who he's 2-8 against for his career
0: not good at all but uh, yeah. maybe maybe there's some room as the schedule falls between JMU and Villanova to, to get things right uh, I will I will will bring up some of the issues you mentioned the injury to Nolan Henderson hurts it sounds like there are some more quarterback injuries going into this Saturday with the backup and even the third string quarterback and, and yeah. maybe there's maybe they'll play three different quarterbacks on on Saturday against JMU what problems have the offense had and, and what's the quarterback situation Well the,
3: the problems ever since uh Henderson went down uh, for good he, he has played through so many injuries getting back to the spring he played through really in gritty fashion in the playoffs uh to get Delaware to the semifinals some different bumps and bruises but now that he's down for the count I am you know, not to be sarcastic or, or make light of it but he is now he really is down for the season uh, for Delaware at least for the regular season um, Delaware really had to reinvent itself on offense. You know, Nolan Henderson is, is the most mobile, dynamic quarterback Delaware has had at the position in quite some time. And now with Zach Gwynn, he's really just now getting to be comfortable in the offense. He looks increasingly like um, Pat Keogh, uh, who was a quarterback for Delaware when they last saw JMU in the 2018 playoffs. And I asked Danny Rocco about this week, and, and you were there, Greg, and <laughs> he said, "Yeah, that comparison might be fair. You know, you look at their frames, they do wear the same number, but number 12. But beyond that." They're both pocket passers, but they can stand tall in the pocket and deliver a nice touch pass. They can make most or all the throws. Um, so Zach Gwynn is just getting to that point where he can be more than the game manager. He can push the ball down the field, but he's had to experience an offensive really playbook switch from Nolan Henderson where there's a lot of throwing on the run. There's a lot of play action bootleg. You're not going to see nearly as much of that with Zach Gwynn because he's far more of a traditional pocket passer for the Hens. So Delaware is really just getting comfortable in its new offense. It's really been a whole playbook change, I would say, in the last two weeks. And that's partially contributed to road losses at Rhode Island, where Delaware fell behind 12-0 at the half, and they really got the offense going only in the second half there. And then you look at Stony Brook, they fell behind 13-0, uh, partially on that a big 99-yard touchdown run by Tyson Lawton. So Delaware's offense, ideally, the game plan is to get on the board earlier because they have some weeks under their belt now with this new Zach Gwynn-led offense. And I should say, as far as health goes, Zach Gwynn, there's optimism that he will play. There was concern about a possible concussion coming out of the Stony Brook game. Uh, that's not the case. Danny Rocco said this week his head has been cleared. It's more revisiting a rib injury that he initially sustained against Albany when, when he entered that game and threw an interception. He actually appeared to have hurt his ribs making his own tackle on that play. So he made a diving tackle on his own interception, which I'm sure was good to see the effort. his teammates seeing him make that effort, but I'm sure the coaching staff was a little worried that he was putting himself in that vulnerable position so his ribs got banged up a little bit again against stony brook uh, but there's optimism he'll be ready to go he, he didn't practice monday the hope was he would get to a limited basis on tuesday and then just increasingly get ready ready for game time on saturday so i'd expect to see zach win out there and see a more and more comfortable zach win but then again that jmu defense you know the tfl machine the sack machine they're going to be looking to bring the pressure so zach win should be healthy to go but will he stay in the whole game is another question
0: yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. It's interesting. James Madison has been fortunate to face some backup quarterbacks a few times this year: Maine, Weber State, and Richmond, and also the list kind of goes on and on. So uh, it's it's kind of a similar situation. It seems like going into this Saturday, I will ask: even if Gwynn plays, do you think Delaware will use Anthony Paletti uh, in, in the running to to run the ball a little bit more?
3: Oh, I, I certainly do think you'll see Anthony Pele for a significant number of snaps because this game, if, if Delaware had Nolan Henderson, it would look like such a different game. Because I think for the first time in several years, Delaware would be feeling like, hey, we can compete with JMU on offense. We have a dynamic playmaker of our own, at quarterback. And Zach Wynn just isn't that dynamite yet, or he might never be that particular dynamite moving the ball with his legs. So when it comes to Delaware, the game plan kind of has to revert to, from what I can gather, control the ball, control time possession. And Anthony Pele will be a huge part of that, being that Wildcat quarterback. He's pretty reliably getting four or five yards a pop, but he hasn't faced a JMU defense yet that is really strong on stopping the run and has a great number of bodies in the front seven. So Dan Rocco said he, he regretted a little bit moving away from Paoletti so much at Stony Brook, as Zeller was uh, playing from behind all day, uh, he, he would have preferred to get back to Paoletti more, pound the rock, control the ball. And so that's something that's going to be a prerequisite against JMU. So I would expect to see number 10, uh, Paoletti, not only run, but maybe throw some passes as well. He is very clearly a wildcat quarterback. But against Rhode Island, against Stony Brook, they did line him up for passes. They just ended up dying as plays, whether it was due to a flag or just a hurried pass and never had a chance. But I think they're going to give Pelletti chances to throw just to keep this strong James Madison group a little more off
0: balance. Uh, again, Daniel Steen Kamer of Hero Sports here on a walkthrough podcast with me, Greg Medea. Dan, what about around the quarterback? Does Delaware still feel good with, with Dejon Lee, Thyrick Pitts, and uh, you know a number of different weapons they, they can get the ball to on offense?
3: Oh, without question. I mean, the injuries have ravaged Delaware on the offensive line, the defensive line, um, the linebacker group at times, but really the skill positions have, fortunately for the Hens, really been pretty clear of that injury bug. And that's so crucial because when you have Zach Gwynn in there now in his third start and, and really starting to get in some momentum, he has these starters who he's familiar with, whether it's Dejounte Lee, Tyreek Pitts, Gene Coleman The second is another outstanding wide receiver. Uh, Brett Buckman has been really coming on since the spring playoffs, and he is now starting a wide receiver. So is still feeling really good about the skill positions. At tight end, they're really strong with both Bryce DeMalley and Brain Bros. I think Delaware thinks it stacks up pretty well head-to-head, strictly at the skill positions. Now, can Delaware get them the ball? Will Zach Wynn have time to release the ball is another question. Will Delaware actually convert drives all the way down the field against the JMU defense? I I think that part remains to be seen, but they really like
0: what they've seen, especially from Lee. I mean, Greg, you heard from Coach Rocco. Lee
3: is the heartbeat of the team now, especially with Henderson down. He's always been an emotional and philosophical leader for the group, and now he's just getting a little more patient. He's not trying to do too much. He's hitting the hole at the right times, Danny Rocco has said, so – Lee is going to be another X factor, and he'll bring Simone's juice as well because he alluded to it, uh, to, it uh, to you, Greg, on, on this week's presser that JMU recruited him, no offer, though, uh, for the Virginia native, Dejon Lee. And, and I think he's talked about in years before, a lot of schools overlooked him for his size, you know, he's not the biggest guy. A lot of schools looked at him as strictly a scat back, but now he's Delaware's every down back, especially with a number two running back, Corey Sproul, out uh, with a foot and ankle-type injury. So Dejon Lee just getting more and more carries, And he'll bring some extra juice. I don't know this for a fact, but I think JMU told him he was too small. And I think he's going to remember that going into this game.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. That goes back to the Everett Withers staff at, at JMU. He ended up at Army before transferring to Delaware. It's a good story because he's made the most of his opportunities at CA offensive player of the year this past spring. Dan, what's what's the story with this Delaware defense? They've given up some big plays. You mentioned the the Lawton ninety nine yard run this past weekend against Stony Brook. They've also given a couple a couple of sixty plus yard passes this season. What, what's going on with Delaware's defense in, in terms of the long plays?
3: Yeah, it really has been a long plays and that's been the story of this season. In Newark, when folks are talking about the defense, is what happened? You know, the spring defense was unbelievably efficient, getting teams off the field, and really rarely had a big play, I guess until they got to Brookings in the semifinals. And then South Dakota State and now Mark Gronowski, while he was healthy, had a bit of a field day uh, on the road in a tough environment. But um, Delaware really is has having been having an uncharacteristic season this fall when it comes to the big plays. Um, And it's not only the big plays that have been going downfield, but you look at their red zone defense, they've allowed 13 scores on 14 red zone possessions, and they've forced no turnovers while in the red zone. So they've been bending and not breaking while holding teams outside the red zone, but once teams are getting in the red zone, they're converting, and then you add that to the big plays you mentioned, and those big plays that happened against Stony Brook, Um, Rutgers kind of exposed Delaware early on with huge big plays, as you might expect. For an FBS game. But it just continued. You already had a 75-yard touchdown late in a game in New York to hang in there and make it a close finish. Uh, so really, the big plays has been plaguing Delaware. They're getting healthier. Up until these two games on the road, they've gotten banged up again. Um, they're going to miss Colby Reader, their heartbeat of defense, the, their leading tackler on defense at that middle linebacker spot on Saturday with a rib injury. So whatever oh, it is man. with the ribs right now, it, it, it's, it's plaguing Colby Reader as well. So Delaware's really going to be missing Colby Reader. They've had guys in and out at defensive line uh, that have made it hard for them to get any pressure with their three-man front. Not too many fans are always satisfied with the three-man front because it's, it's, it's been hard for Delaware to get pressure on the quarterback, but that's what Danny is largely stuck with. And so Delaware, the personnel keeps changing. They've had some play breakdowns on the big plays, whether it's falling for a pump fake from Undercuffler and Joe Fignano earlier in the year. It, it feels like everything in the book. And so when Tyson Lawton took it 99 yards from his own one on a play where Delaware was in cover zero, one broken tackle, and then there's no safety help, it's just felt like the problem's kept on mounting. So... It really, it, painting this picture, I know for a JMU offense that's looking to get back on track after settling for a lot of field goals at Richmond, they might be licking their chops because while Delaware has been controlling between the 20 and the 20 pretty well, when a team is within its own 20, they've been hitting big plays, and when a team gets within Delaware's 20, they've been finishing drives oh, with little issues, so we'll have to see how the Delaware defense bounces back, but particularly without Colby Reader.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. I, I know JMU would like to break a long run or two. I haven't done that much this season. They've they've had some big plays in the passing game with Antoine Wells and Chris Thornton. Uh, so we'll see if they can if they can capitalize on on some of the issues that Delaware has had on defense. Okay, Dan, before I get you out. I want to get some of your take on on the CAA and what's going on around the league right now. If you look outside of Villanova, everybody has at least one loss in the league, uh, so it's it's kind of a muddled, especially in the middle. You look at the standings: James Madison, Rhode Island, William Mary, Eagle on New Hampshire, Towson. All those schools have have one loss in the league right now. Do you think Villanova can can run the table, and and what teams do you think are, are the most viable playoff candidates uh, as, as we sit, you know, more than midway through October at this point?
3: Yeah, Greg, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it feels like we can say it every year in the CA where it gets muddled more and more as we get deeper and deeper in October, and this year's really no different. And I think th- it's especially the case because of so many players returning from the spring season with that eligibility relief. There are more and more teams that are more experienced. And they're competing um, better than maybe we've seen. I, I think JMU, make no mistake, is still the most viable team. We're talking about advancing deep in the playoffs. I mean, you see the one loss uh, in the conference uh, standings column. But, you know, you hit a field goal that Ethan Radke hits, you know, eight or nine times out of ten. And, and you're beating Villanova and you're still unbeaten, and you know, in the top three in the country. So I'm not really too phased by that when evaluating JMU. I think they're still, compared to the entire conference, the most viable team to go deep and uh, knock on the door to Frisco. But Villanova deserves credit for actually getting in there, in the Harrisonburg and getting the win. I mean, you saw it firsthand, Oh yeah, Um, they are really strong. They have been also played by injuries in a similar way to I think Delaware is this year. But now Villanova is the team that's healthy. Their quarterback, Daniel Smith, is an amazing player, Uh, really one of the best QBs in the league, especially with Henderson out of the picture at this time. So Villanova really is threatening for a seed now. And uh, it's gonna be interesting to see if JMU and Villanova can coexist as possible seeds, both coming out of the CAA. Uh, Rhode Island is worth discussing very much as well. I mean, they beat Delaware uh, at home. A huge win for them to get over that Delaware hump at Meade Stadium. They're, they are 5-1. and one. They only suffered their first loss on the road at Towson. You wonder if maybe that was just a result of taking the Patriots team plane, having all the hype, being unbeaten, being ranked, and being a favorite, and then just having maybe a little bit of a letdown at Towson, who has struggled a little bit on the offense this season. So I think Rhode Island will be okay. Their, their schedule's very favorable. They did not face JMU. They do face Villanova this week, though, so I'm very keyed in on that Villanova-Rhode Island game. I think that's going to tell us a lot about both teams. Um, a team that stands out in the middle is William, William and Mary. They haven't played the best strength of schedule yet, but... They have a, I'm sure they have a game against JMU remaining being in Virginia. Yes, I haven't seen the whole slate, but they, okay, they do yep. play the Dukes mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. usual. Um, so that game is going to be a tough game for them, but I have an eye on them. But, I mean, a 4-2 overall, you've got to respect it. Um, and then I think the team worth mentioning that is towards the standings that still deserves recognition is Richmond. Uh, missing Joe Mancuso is a big deal, and they've really sputtered since then. I think Richmond is the picture that Delaware does not want to be. You know, Richmond now has four losses, and so they're in a really bad spot to be relevant in November. I think Delaware wants to do everything it can to avoid ending up like Richmond, you know, missing a strong quarterback and then just dropping games from there. Delaware has to find a way to, ironically, now against JMU, the week after JMU played Richmond, Delaware has to find a way to steal a game there or against Villanova because they, they need for Dan Rocco's career momentum, even if it's not, you know, playing for coaching for his job on the line. For momentum's sake, Delaware has to be relevant in November. So, Richmond, I think, is worth mentioning. They're better than their record, uh, but Delaware does not want to end up like them because uh, similar quarterback situations exist between the
0: two. Yeah, no doubt. It, it's really interesting. I know Albany's suffered some heartbreakers for sure. Yes. Stony Brook, yes. as you could see, is, is capable of beating everybody in the league. and I, I thought he even played well out west at FBS Oregon when they went toe-to-toe uh, to, yep. to, with the Ducks not, for, for, for at least a little bit of the game and, and gave them a tough, uh, tough game. Uh, and and you know I just uh, the league is is very, very competitive and i think so I mentioned this on the podcast before is that with all these sixth year seniors fifth year seniors it it seems like almost every school you've got a lot of experienced teams, so I think that's made for an interesting uh, an interesting interesting fall anyway, Dan, I appreciate you taking some time to join a walkthrough podcast. It was nice having you on and and for my listeners who don't know. Uh, maybe maybe who you are yet. I will inform them that he's an up and coming reporter. You know he's only a student at, at Syracuse University, but he's been covering the league for the last few years now. Does a really nice job. Knows the Delaware program really really well. So it was nice to have Dan on. Dan, thanks so much.
3: No, thank you so much. Greg, for having me. It's been a blast. And as I hear you talk about the CAA, I'll just make one note as I go. New Hampshire, Elon. Two teams neighboring in the standings, I'm watching that game too. So just squeeze that in there at the end. But uh thank you so much, Greg. Really appreciate it.
0: Great to hear from Dan. And honestly, I, I do think if, if this game comes down to one thing, it's it's what JMU can do against backup against another backup quarterback. You heard me talk about it a little bit with Dan. They've faced backup quarterbacks seemingly week after week. Uh, Going back to week two against Maine when they knocked Fanato out of the game. Going to Weber State, and their starting quarterback was hurt. New Hampshire was on to Brett Edwards, right? And you, you look this past week at Richmond. They played three quarterbacks. Delaware, it seems like, could play as many as three quarterbacks on Saturday. So... I don't like that matchup for other teams. I don't like inexperienced quarterbacks against a defense that just is going to absolutely try to rattle the quarterback and force him into mistakes. Six sacks this past Saturday. I think it's possible, unless Delaware really slows the game down and relies on its wildcat quarterback, Anthony Paoletti, to me, I think it's possible that JMU just just tries to get after the quarterback as much as possible and really send pressure. I talked to Tony Thurston a little bit this week about it. Who had the back-to-back sacks at Richmond uh, to end the third quarter, like I had mentioned a little earlier, and he, he said, "Yeah, you know, you can sense when there's a backup quarterback back there." JMU's defense is designed to get pressure anyway, but at the same time, when there's a backup quarterback in there, a young guy, particularly. You're gonna ratchet it up and, and really try to try to force the issue and force the quarterback in a mistake. So that's where things are at with this Delaware JMU game. I'll be making a trip up on Friday, game on Saturday, and it should be it should be an interesting game to see what the Dukes can do at Delaware and if they can get their offense right a little bit. I think that's an important part of this trip for JMU going to Delaware. But that'll do it for this edition of the Walkthrough Podcast. Until next time, and we'll do, hopefully, a regular one next week where I get it out early in the morning on uh, Thursday, but hopefully do a regular one next week where I can look back at Jamie's game at Delaware and head to their matchup with Elon, a good Elon team that's playing a little bit better. Uh, but anyway, until next time, I am Greg Medea, Saying thanks for tuning in.